As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Yo, technology, what is it all about? We'd obviously have to prove the model works. We'd have to prove that we're producing interesting people. But if we do, I mean, I think this will fix global wealth inequality because we'll have a way to find smart, ambitious, creative people at scale. Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley, your weekly dispatch from behind the scenes and inside the minds from the top people in tech. This week, as with every week, I hope you'll agree, we have a very interesting and engaging guest. Daniel Gross, the founder of Pioneer, which is a new type of accelerator slash fund slash startup video game, is here. And if that sounds weird, it's because it is. But basically what Gross is doing is trying to install video game dynamics, like creating a startup kind of ideas tournament with leaderboards and funding for the winner, to ferret out the very best ideas, the very best people in the world, and then help them bring whatever it is that they're working on to fruition. So in other words, he's trying to, for lack of a better word, systematize a way to discover the hidden Einsteins and Picassos, wherever they may be, in whatever field they may be working in. And if you still don't get it, don't worry, because you have about 45 minutes to hear it straight from Daniel, who is full of youthful exuberance, uh, which is probably helped by the very large Starbucks he was holding when he showed up at our office last week. Um, But what I think you'll find is that he has a genuine desire to move the needle for the world, and Pioneer is new. It's only a few months old, but who knows? Maybe it'll work. But I think you'll find the idea interesting and what he's up to and his approach to it is um you know it's pretty unique and it's uh it'll make you think so without further ado let's get to daniel gross who's the founder of pioneer right now enjoy daniel gross thank you for being here thank you for having me on you are a grizzled veteran of silicon valley are you not well, grizzled, I, as you can see, that I, I haven't quite been able to grow the beard that you have. Without the actual grizzle. Yeah. How old are you now? I'm uh, 27 years young. So I think before we get to Pioneer, which I think is a super interesting idea, yeah. I think it would be good to just go through your backstory to kind of, because I think that really colors what you're doing now. Yeah. Go. All right. Sounds good. <laughs> uh, I came out to Silicon Valley when uh, I was 18 years old. I was born and raised in Jerusalem, Israel, the little place in the Middle East that's on the news a lot. And um, I've heard of it. I was raised as an Orthodox Jew, leading a very different life from the one I do today. You're raised Orthodox. Uh, raised Orthodox. Wow. Yeah. Did not, or could have not predicted anything that happened in my life. And everything kind of changed when I was 18. I, on a total whim, I applied from my Nokia phone, a Nokia N95 phone that was like tethered to my laptop. Oh, yeah. yeah, that stuff. Was GSM. Little, was that a little brick? Uh, it wasn't a brick. It had a screen, but it was like still the internet. It was, what was it called? WAP? Internet. Oh, yeah. I don't know yeah. if you remember that. That was yeah. bit, used to be big. Yeah. We thought oh, yeah. that was the was future. Big. And then Steve Jobs said, hold my beer. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and um, I applied to uh, Y Combinator on a total whim from Israel, from Jerusalem, and I got in to the program. And so, but, so just so I understand, what does that process entail? When you say you applied, you say, hi, I'm Daniel Gross. I'm an Orthodox J- Jewish kid. Pretty much. Living in Jerusalem. I think I'm the guy for you. Like, what does what the application entail? Did you have to pitch an idea there and then? Yeah. So the application entails describing a little bit about yourself, but a lot about a project that you're working on, or company, really. And I had started a company alongside a friend of mine from high school. I mean, I had started building stuff. I was writing code for as long as I can remember. And I'd started building stuff in high school, making money, making websites for people, building a a lot of what we would call today apps. Back then, you know, we called them programs. 
And at some point I decided, uh, you know, we had this idea for a company we were going to start, me and a friend of mine, uh, and we decided to apply to Y Combinator for it. At the time, we almost did it as a joke. We were 18 years old. They had never really accepted anyone in our age range. And um, Silicon Valley seemed infinitely far away. I mean, it seemed like a place you read about online that you don't actually ever go to, like a planet, you know, like Mars. Yeah. Although, who knows? Maybe we'll change that, too. I was going to say, that's, that's now within yeah, that's reach, on the supposedly. Docket. Yeah. Um, I filled out the application. I told them about my company idea. They invited me out to Silicon Valley to in- be interviewed. I spoke to them about my idea. They told me my idea was terrible. Um, but they liked me enough to— ex- What was the idea? In my defense, it was basically Pinterest. Um, okay. And now, I'm doing it a lot of Basically credit. Pinterest. Uh, there sounds like there's a lot of wiggle room in there. Well, the way I was pitching it was, yeah, uh, it was uh, online catalogs of products. It was mo- a little bit more of an online magazine. I mean, I would have never been able to build Pinterest that required, actually, in a circuitous adventure, would end up meeting Ben as he was building Pinterest in... Ben Silberman. Uh, ben Silberman, founder and CEO of Pinterest, as he was building it in a small office on California Ave in Palo Alto, we spoke a lot about his product, and he'd obviously gone far beyond what we were ever going to go down. But Paul Graham kind of correctly identified, at least for us, our permutation of that idea in its primitive state was not not a great one. I ended up through the course of Y Combinator working on a bunch of different companies, basically, right. always iterating. So the idea was have an idea, make it, launch it, realize no one likes it, start from scratch, do that over and over. You did that when you were 18? I was 18, yeah. Did did you not have to go to the army? I very briefly started my service in the Israeli army and then left. Uh, I have dual citizenship. My parents are American. Oh, okay. So I kind of, yeah, I put that on hold in order to play the, the video game that is American capitalism. <laughs> um, so. And if you ever went back, would you still, like, because I have a friend who's Greek and he, he has parents who are Greek. His mother lives in Greece. And he was thinking about becoming a Greek citizen, but they're like, well, if mm. you do that... You have to spend some time in the army. This is kind of a requirement for you as a male. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, I, if 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 uh, if and when I go back to Israel, I'm going to have to figure out a way to resume my service in some format. Right. So yeah, we'll we'll see. So you might just stay super busy out here. The game of capitalism. Well, I mean, I, you know, ultimately, I benefited from that country. Basically, uh, you know, it it very much raised me and colored who I am, and so. I've paid it forward, actually, in different ways, helped a lot of Israeli founders raise capital out here, help them with their companies. And, you know, those are engineering yeah. teams that are paying taxes and growing in Israel. But at some point, I'll have to, you know, formally resolve my situation as well. <laughs> so just going back to that time, so you go through Y Combinator, you try a bunch of different things, you're throwing lots of stuff at the wall. Yeah. Does any of it stick? It sticks to varying degrees, but it's kind of like the type of snow that you hate as a kid when you want school to get canceled, where it doesn't stick enough. Yeah. You know, startups are very much a roller coaster, and it was a lot of ups and downs. The downer came, the biggest downer kind of came right before Demo Day, which is the which is kind of the end of the program, where, yeah. you know, you kind of get up on stage and you get to present your startup to the world. I had been actually working on a product uh, that was making quite a bit of money off Amazon affiliate revenue, which is you know, they'll pay you out if you end up referring customers to them. Right. And Amazon had, for various reasons, changed their terms of service and kind of shut us down maybe 48 hours before the final kind of demo day day. That's unfortunate. That's uh, super unfortunate. My co-founder, who ended up becoming a great friend of mine, also decided at that point to head back to Israel. And so I was left suddenly co-founderless and idealist with two days to go until this momentous event. And I went over to Paul Graham's house, and I remember two amazing, amazingly uh, important things of that day. One is he kind of laid out the map of opportunity that I had in front of me. He mm-hmm. said, you know, you could have three options. You could present your old idea to people and not tell them that, you know, your wonderful revenue graph is about to crash. You could work on a brand new project and try to not make it clear to everyone that it's two days old, or you could kind of defer demo day and, right. and do away. That was the one great event that happened that day. The other one, just a random sidebar, shows you that, you know, there may be a God is, um, I, that is the only time in my life I ever bumped into Steve Jobs, who lives right next to Paul Graham, almost ran me over. And this will make sense. Steve Jobs almost ran you over. Yes, that was my only interaction with him. Where were you looking at your phone? (laughs) (laughs) Ironically, it's really ironic you mentioned that because on my way over here, I literally hit the pavement hard because I was looking at my phone, stumbled into a sidewalk. So yeah. I paid I paid debt for my uh, phone addiction. But um, I decided to do that second option. I built a brand new product, which is a search engine from scratch kind of in two days. I mean, it was a barely functional prototype. Got up on stage. I demoed it to people. 
And um, I spent the next couple of months effectively fundraising during the day and building out a prototype during the night. I ended up bringing on a co-founder, became one of my best friends. The gentleman was working at Google prior, so his background was quite relevant. Ran, ended up raising a Series A from Sequoia, a Series B from Sequoia. Company got acquired by Apple in 2013. Wow. Yeah. So it ended what up What kind of search out. engine? Basically, if you, the Spotlight, if you've ever used it. Uh, I have not. Okay. So on your phone or Mac, there's a product called Spotlight, which I think you have used. It's what you use to search anything. Oh, Yeah. I've used that. That thing. Yeah. Um, and so That's we, yours. We built a variant of Spotlight. Well, Spotlight's been uh, you know, on OS X and iOS forever. We built a variant of it that kind of searched through all of your cloud content. So you could search Gmail, Dropbox, Evernote, Salesforce, Basecamp, all in one place, whatever eclectic mix of services you use, which is quite useful because sometimes you don't remember what Google Apps account that Google Doc is in. So we just built a really good mobile app that just gave you all of that stuff. You know, it saved you only a couple of minutes, but a couple of minutes a day adds up. Yeah. And so it was a good product. It was incredibly expensive to run because we had to build a lot of these search indices in the cloud and all of that. We were paying Amazon a fantastic amount of money. Um, I'm sure. And Apple approached us at some point and said, hey, why don't you kind of work on the same stuff here? And you don't have to worry about that server bill to Amazon anymore. Yeah. We'll take it from here. So. The team, you know, very much grew quite a bit and is still at Apple, pretty much working on making your phone smarter, making Spotlight better, making it such that if you've tried this on iOS, it's quite neat. It shows you search results before you even type anything in. It tries to predict what app you're going to use. Yeah. So all that kind of stuff. A lot of kind of machine learning and search at Apple. And the weird thing about the story is here I am, a 22, 23-year-old, a director at Apple working on machine learning across the entire company, by market cap, the world's largest company. And I had no idea that that was going to happen to me at the time that I had filled out that YC application. So the the weird twist from the story and, and the real learning for Pioneer is you have these very small moments that create tectonic shifts in people's lives. And I think the world is bottlenecked on, forget me, people far more productive than me, the kind of extraordinarily productive people, you know, the best writers, musicians, thinkers, artists, Elon, J.K. Rowling, Marie Curie, and Ramanujans. You know, we don't have enough of those. And if you believe that in the story of every one of those great people, there's an inordinate amount of luck involved, just yeah. like there wasn't in mine, then the hypothesis of Pioneer is that with a fairly cheap intervention – and a lot of motivational help, you can create many more of these people. So I think the world can stand to have like 10x more Elons, 10x more J.K. Rowlings, 10x more Marie Curies, if we just managed to create more of those moments that I had. And that's what we're trying to do. We give people that seem extraordinarily promising, the kind of creative, industrious outsiders of the world, a home, a little bit of funding, and a community of like-minded other people. Mm-hmm. And the key point about us, and where we're different from the Pell Grant, Teal Fellowship, MacArthur Fellowship, or Combinator, whatever, is we give grants to all types of projects, all types of people, and importantly, we do almost everything in software. So we're built for internet scale from the ground up. What do you mean? So if you look at, say, the Ivy League, which is traditionally the institution that yep. is designed to like kind of do this thing, it's ironic given the fact that they train people that make flying cars and rockets, but the Ivy League basically uses, is run like it's out of the 19th or 18th century. It's like a yeah, kind of a clubby... It's a clubby thing. You got a bunch of people reading thousands, tens of thousands of applications. You know, sometimes they're tired and sometimes they have a cup of coffee and that's tainting their opinion. And they're deciding, you know, who's in, who's out. And that only scales so far. You know, yeah. I, I, I don't blame them. I think their system is flawed. I don't think they're flawed. We, pretty much from the ground up, are trying to do everything, number one, without a physical presence, and two, importantly, the selection and screening process is almost entirely done in software. So So you're trying to kind of effectively create like a kind of Ivy League-style funnel that is global. Digital Ivy League campus. That is a dream. Right. Basically, give the benefits of the Ivy League to millions of people around the world that might be as brilliant but as hidden as Ramanujan was. Right. Doing this involves two, I think, interesting things. One is, how do you find these people? How do you reach them? And then two, the the really interesting thing is, how do you kind of help them? What are the most meaningful ways to help them? See, because I think the benefit of the Ivy League, it's not the professor and the curriculum. It's everything else. It's you get there. And you're surrounded by... It's the network, right? The network. Yeah. And it's, you're surrounded by people that, you know, some of them are, su- are suddenly better than you, you realize, for the first time in your life. And you kind of think, I would like to be like that. I'd like to punch above my weight. I'm now a part of this elite club. And that gets people to do things they never would have thought. 
they could possibly do. What we're trying to do is we're trying to build that in software. You know, the way Pioneer works is you apply with pretty much any project you want to work on. Tell us a little bit about yourself, a little bit about your project. And then you play this like 30-day Pioneer tournament. And it's a 30-day process you go through where you just continually write progress updates about what you're doing. You just need to make progress on whatever goal it is. Could be you're trying to like get more people to listen to the music you're making. It could be mm-hmm. a company you're starting. It could be research you're doing. Just describe your progress. Other people that have also applied are constantly rating you based on your progress, just like the experience on an Ivy League campus where you're telling people what you, yeah. you, know, what you did that week. The interesting side effect of this is, as a result, everyone kind of gets points given on how much progress they're making. And we have this leaderboard that is kind of a, a digital manifestation of what I think happens in the real world, which just ranks all the different pioneers in different countries and kind of shows them where they stand. And we're noticing, we're seeing the same innate human desire to improve yourself comes out kind of in this digital Even if I'm in Sierra Leone and somebody else is in China or whatever. Ah, so this is a great point. Leaderboards have value even if they're global, even if like we're in Sierra Leone and the other person's in China. But they get stronger and stronger and stronger the more you can relate to the other people in the leaderboard. So the most powerful leaderboards are, of course, your relationship with friends, where you really care what your friends think about you. And you see this in certain products like Strava. It's kind of fun to occasionally compete with your friends because you know them, right? Obviously, ideally, developing real camaraderie between our applicants would be the ultimate goal. But the, the slight variant of that that we did while we're working on this is we sliced up the leaderboards by country. And it turns out that drastically increases retention. Oh, interesting. Where you could say, I'm now just competing with the people in Ghana or just with the people in Switzerland. And I get to be like number five in Europe as opposed to, you know, number five or number 30 globally, if that makes sense. How do you get the word out? Yeah, so the bad news is that it's a problem. The good news is that the internet has basically now spread to everyone in the world. And that's one of the key reasons why I think Pioneer is only possible today is data mobile to be in every pocket of the internet yeah, and every pocket of the planet, sorry. So we use the same growth hacking techniques that are used to like shove products in your face. We use to shove Pioneer in the faces of people who we think need it the most. And what's cool about it is, and I'll tell you a little bit of some, uh, some of the stuff we do, no one else in the world is really bidding on these users. It's actually fairly cheap to reach thousands of people in Ethiopia because they're not lucrative customers. Right. Like, you know, folks in San Francisco downloading uh, dog walking apps. Yeah. So we go for the kind of hidden nooks and crannies of the Internet, and we advertise pioneers there. So, for example, visa forms, people desperately seeking ways to get into the U.S. We say, hey, not really related to visa, but... I kind of think this could be interesting to you. You might want to check it out. Interesting, right. Um, right, right. Another weird one is, um, have you heard of SciHub? No. Oh, science, uh, science, uh, scientific research papers. Yes. So it's basically the Napster of scientific research papers. If you go to a place like Harvard or Stanford, you have access to these publication journals and you can yeah. read any paper you want. If not, you have to rely on this Napster thing, which just has them all, you know, in a quasi-legal, illegal fashion. But um, what we do is we advertise against that. So we buy Google ad queries against people looking for SciHub because it turns out if you want to find that thing, it probably means you're looking up some interesting research paper in chemistry, which probably means we want to talk to you. The Internet is this massive playground that's now global. You know, it's now hit billions of people. And there are all sorts of corners of the playground we can kind of advertise ourselves in to get the word out. The final thing I should mention that we're working on is we're working on a big new feature for Pioneer that will drastically help which is not just trying to find the applicants, but actually trying to find the local influencers in every country. And these people might be a little bit easier to get to, and they might be a little bit better at delivering Pioneer the kind of the final, the last mile, if that makes sense. So, And you're not talking about influencers like, hey guys, look at me. my new mascara, OMG. That's right. Instagram influencers have a wonderful purpose on the planet, but not really with us. I'm more talking about the principal of the high school that realizes that one of their students right. is brilliant. Or the principal of the local university that has this person that is obviously too good to be there. These folks know who's good because those students are coming to them and they can tell. They've read all the books in the library. Their local life seems bland and they need to break out. Right. So, you know, it turns out part of the solution to this problem is uh, not finding the people, but find the people who know the people. And that's a little bit easier because these people are reading publications. They right. are. So that's a little bit about how we get the word out. 
Oh, the final thing I should add that's kind of fun is the, you know, obviously I mentioned we're big on leaderboards and we're kind of big on gamifying the experience of doing things. We have an additional leaderboard, not for the applicants, but for our top refers. Ironically, goes back to what I was originally working on at YC, these referral networks. But um, you can generate kind of special codes for yourself. And if you refer applicants to Pioneer, you get placed on a leaderboard. And so you could actually go visit it now. It's, it's kind of fun to watch. You could see people here we know in Silicon Valley have kind of tweeted the word out about Pioneer. Mm-hmm. And you're really getting a sense for who has more ambitious outsiders in their network. Like, for example, I think as we speak, Balaji is like fifth position in the leaderboard, whereas Patrick Collison is 12th position in the leaderboard. And so it's kind of a fun way right, 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 to right, grade right. the um, ambition of people's network. Do they get anything out of that, the referrals? I mean, is there any incentive aside from effectively bragging rights? So we buy a T-shirt for the winner, but it's basically (laughs) bragging rights. Um, Well, the reason I ask is because earlier this week, I had a really interesting conversation with a married couple in Cleveland, Ohio, in their 60s. And they're part of this life insurance program through John Hancock. And John Hancock is the first life insurance company to say, we're no longer doing, quote unquote, old school life insurance. All life insurance going forward will be have some kind of interactive component. And so they have this program where if they'll give you a Fitbit or an Apple Watch, and if you take 10,000 steps a day, if you keep doing that, then we'll cut off, we'll lop off hundreds or even thousands off your premiums. Right. But the guy at John Hancock, who I, who's running this program, he said the most effective way to kind of get people to hit those goals, which have very real consequences on their health and longevity, is this wheel of fortune type wheel that they get to spin when they get enough points and you get a spin and it's like five dollars at starbucks or an amazon gift card it's kind of like just like little prizes like you know like getting the stuffed animal at the carnival or something but he said that by far has driven engagement in that program and the end result is obviously dramatic for the company and for these people in terms of health and how long they live but it's really about, like, I just want to spin the wheel. I want to win something. You know, it's interesting you say that. We think a lot of about game game design in building Pioneer. And one of the themes that we haven't brought yet into the product, but, but that we will, is um, randomness. It turns out randomness is a fundamental component in all good games. The best example of this is lottery tickets. I mean, every week millions of people make a terrible economic decision to buy the lottery <laughs> ticket. Why, why do they do that? I think it's partially... Because of the myth of winning, but also partially, I think it's intertwined with this idea of it is impossible to model how the system works. The statistics are too big to comprehend or even model, so you can't really model it. But you get obsessed with this idea of what might happen in a system you can't really model. It's interesting to think about, so you think about it a lot. And a lot of good games will occasionally, like, they'll have these things with these pseudo-random processes that people don't really understand. And they, they're constantly trying to reverse engineer, figure out, like, what causes that yeah. to happen? It's a very innate human desire. It's that injection of randomness that causes novelty. A, gr- a great example of this in books is um, the sorting hat from Harry Potter. The sorting hat's this random de- plot device thrown in there that r- kind of randomly selects where you go to. And it's not really clear why it selects it. And people start reading into it. Well, what does this say about you? And maybe it actually creates your personality. Maybe it's truly random. So it very much resonates to me when you say like, yeah, people get obsessed with the, I mean, in your head, you can't stop modeling. Like what might happen when I spin the wheel? Yeah, it's so funny because they're like, yeah, this this couple said over the past few years, they've, they've saved literally thousands of dollars. What they're really excited about is their free latte. Mm -hmm. Because you spin the wheel, you don't know what you're going to win. And like, who knows? Money is actually very low on the list in terms of how much it affects people's happiness or in terms of how useful it is as a prize. In fact, for Pioneer, the money that we give people, we give people small grants anywhere between one to $5,000. Um, that's actually probably... That's it, one to $5,000. We, If they start a company, we'll invest in the company up to $100,000. But the initial grant that they get just yeah. for whatever project they're working on is very small. I think it's also the least important thing we give them. Now, don't get me wrong. There's some countries where $1,000, $5,000 is a big deal. Yeah. Actually, one of our initial pioneers said it, it literally changed his life because you just go from – you now have six months where you just don't have to think about it. But the more important thing that we're giving people is a sense of motivation and community. It's Again, it goes back to this digital Ivy League idea. It turns out that that's the real gift. And, and that was surprising to me. It was surprising to me to get emails – more emails from people who lose than people who win, right. thanking us for making a thing that held them accountable, that got them focused on their goals. It right. kind of was like a gym for, their, for productivity, if you right. will. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot 
is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. In terms of what ideas get accepted or what people get accepted, yeah. is that is that too automated? Or is that, going back to your idea around, like, you know, the kind of Ivy League model are you and your team sitting there going through one at a time and being like, mm, this yeah. isn't ambitious enough or this is a bit too left field or this is unrealistic or yeah. whatever? So the way it works is um, the leaderboard is constructed entirely by people voting on each other, people taking a bunch of different tests that we have or proving somehow they're making progress on their goals. There's no, there's nothing else to it. That's that's the way the, the kind of entire leaderboard is done. Now, this isn't the first time I've kind of worked on algorithmic systems, did a lot of this at, in uh, machine learning style work at Apple. When you're doing this style of work, uh, you do need, as you get started, human supervision to make sure that what you're producing is actually good. Yeah. We do have a different domain experts that come in and kind of review their leaderboard. It's like a sense check, basically. Yeah. Is, is this normal? Is this okay? Right. And over time, the idea is to basically get rid of those people. We have a lot of plans on how to do that. I mean, we're, we're increasingly kind of using modeling, uh, statistical modeling and machine learning techniques to improve the quality uh, of, the, of the voting experience. There's, right. a, there's a lot that, one, that, that you can do there. For now, we have some human supervision, but this is the kind of first system built from the ground up where you can actually remove the scaffolding from the building and it'll continue to stand uh, as opposed to being entirely reliant on these folks. So yeah, if you go to the, log on the website today, that leaderboard is, I mean, it's basically entirely done in an automated way. So... An example, and I'm thinking about a couple different people in my life. Say I have a script or a novel, yeah, and it's highly ambitious. It's a you know fantasy or whatever. Yeah, could I go on to Pioneer and I could say this is my idea, this is what I'm working on, this is my goal, or is it more technical, or is it the whole gamut? If the idea is to kind of basically find the hidden geniuses wherever they may be, yeah, can they be doing anything? Yeah. So my dream is time 100. I want five, 10 years from now, all of Time 100 to be pioneers. And those people are the icons of society in many different lenses. There's Barack Obama, there's J.K. Rowling, there's Aaron Sorkin, there's also Elon Musk. And if you look at the, the, the pioneers that we've already announced, they kind of span the gamut here. There's someone building a programming language for physics, someone working on research and machine learning. There's also someone working on a tactile watch. 18-year-old girl building a smart tactile watch for people that are blind. There's, right. Someone designing of uh, actually a VR game for blind people as well, which I find quite fascinating. Someone working on curing sepsis, which is the largest uh, cause of mm. death in U.S. hospitals. There were also a lot of people that applied. They didn't win. I'm sure you know we just ran the tournament for the first time with music, with art. One of the pioneers is working on cataloging street art around the world using machine learning. It's actually quite fascinating. Wow. The belief is that that gives you a true sense for what's kind of going on on the ground in, right. in, in different parts of the developing world. I think creativity and, and ambition comes in many different forms and flavors. And I think that these extraordinarily productive people that we want to help and create are across every industry. The thing we're trying to motivate, the, tr the thing we're trying to support is just people making rapid progress. That's really it. Right. So that so sorry that game starts and it's one month or two months. Two it's months. it's one month one and month. Then we kind of reset it every month. Okay. Here's the funny thing: when we originally started it, we kind of thought we were going to run this and there would be some winners every month, and it would be just different people month over month. Turns out that's not really how it, our users are using our product. It turns out a massive amount of people are reapplying from tournament Trying to tournament. Again. Here's the crazy thing: the winners want to try again too. 
and you ask them why. You got you guys why? And you're pioneers. You got the stuff. Turns out the accountability they want for a while. You know, you don't go to college for a month. You go there for a couple of years so that it can really mold and change your psychology. And that's really shifted our view on it from we're not really searching for these people as much as we're just trying to motivate one day millions of people on the internet to follow their dreams and passions. And the best ones, there's, there's got to be some prize that you get yeah. to. But as it turns out, in a very kind of zen way, the process of getting there is the important part, not the actual winning element. It's the journey. It's not the destination. There you go. <laughs> so after that month, what say I win. Yeah. Hooray. What yeah. do I get? Okay. So you get, you get $5,000. You get a ticket to Silicon Valley. And I'll explain to you why we do that in a minute. If you start a company, we may end up investing up to $100,000 in it if you really need the capital. Like I mentioned, I think the, the main thing we're initially giving you is, is actually not the capital. You get mentorship from some of the experts, which I think is, is incredibly important. There's a bunch of other bonus things, like if you need it, there's $100,000 available to you in Google Cloud credits, so you can right. build your website. But it's, it's, you generally get what is hopefully the perfect package to like kickstart you into this positive feedback loop of, of changing the world. The most interesting thing about all the perks that we give out is this idea of a, of a ticket to Silicon Valley. Fundamentally, we want to build something that scales infinitely. I mean, I think it would be great to fund millions of pioneers one day. Mm-hmm. We'd obviously have to prove the model works. We'd have to prove that we're producing interesting people. But if we do, I mean, I, I think this will fix global wealth inequality because we'll have a way to find smart, ambitious, creative people at scale. That's your kind of, as a pioneer, so to speak, Yeah, that's your goal. That's my goal. That's right. My goal, if this thing works, is to take billions of dollars and then pump it through Pioneer and hand out millions of grants. I think it'll dramatically change the world. Like, it's one thing to try to work on, say, global warming or putting rockets on Mars. But I actually think the more important thing to work on is increasing the amount of people working on that stuff 10 orders of magnitude. Like, let's get 10x more people who are incredibly creative working on global warming working on curing cancer, working on wonderful music and art. I mean, it'd be amazing if all the Netflix shows didn't look all the same, you know, if we had some, <laughs> some different stuff. So that, that, that is the grand vision. And um, So why bring them to Silicon Valley? Bringing them to Silicon Valley is a hack, basically. There's something incredibly important that happens when humans meet face-to-face. They create a real bond that is possible to get if you keep them just at internet level, but it's much harder to do. There's some positive examples of this, like certain subreddits, certain online open source communities have real tight bonds, but nothing really replaces humans meeting face-to-face in the real world. So I'm agnostic to the place that we bring them. We're starting with Silicon Valley because that's where we are. But I think we have to get every cohort of pioneers to at least see each other once. Now, this is a cheap and scalable intervention. We'll have to buy airline tickets and, you know, we'll have to, like, do some scheduling. But we could, you know, potentially you know, do this with thousands of people one day. And maybe we get to the point of scale where we have local hubs. So if you're in Europe, there's a Europe thing. If you're in Africa, there's an Africa thing. Because I think it's really important to create a community and a sense of kind of tribal bonding that's possible, but again, quite tricky to do if you're limited to exchanging Slack messages with someone. Yeah. And so that's why we fly them out and put them together. We're going to have them go through a bunch of good experiences together where they'll create real, you know, relationships and memories. Kind of like YC, right? It's kind of like YC. It's kind of like Harvard. It's kind of like Burning Man. It's kind of like going through any experience with, with folks. You know, you build real real bonds with them that way. Is one of your motivations here, because obviously we're here in Silicon Valley. Yes. Just two standard white guys talking about yes. changing the world. Yes. Most people look like you or I in terms of who's got the money, who's working on these problems, who's getting the support to try to solve these problems, that there is a kind of a sameness here that is showing itself, at least in my mind, to be problematic, especially now in 2018. Yeah, I mean, I I think it's bad for progress and growth. The future I want to live in is one where if you are born with ambition and creativity, you just get the resources. That's the science fiction novel I want to live in. It's just, boom, here you go, thanks, bye. I think that would create significantly more progress. Like, I think the bottleneck on, on societal growth and progress across every industry is the lack of different weird attempts people are doing. I think all psychologists are running their research on their psychologist buddies that are pretty much all looking the same. <laughs> I think, um, and I think a lot of what forms our worldview is where we grew up, where we came from, skin color, all of that. And so I'd imagine in physics, you know, just trying to come up with new ideas, but it's all kind of the same melting pot. I think we want two things. Selfishly, we want the most diverse set of like opinions in the room. 
And second, it just feels like the right thing to do, that if you are born and somehow can work to get creativity or ambition or just make progress on anything, you just get resources. Our current world where there are people in between you and resources will be viewed as totally weird 30 years from now. Why were there people in the middle deciding who to allocate resources to? Why don't you just have a machine allocate resources? You think that's actually going to happen? I mean, I think if we can get the software to do the right thing, totally. And this is why we have some human supervision in the loop. We've got to make sure the software does the right thing. If we can achieve escape velocity here, I think that would be a much, much better future to live in. I mean, Ramanujan spent like decades writing weird letters to people in India, trying to get attention from everyone with his prime numbers that no one understood until like a person met a person met a person. And it, by total happenstance, got to G.H. Hardy at Oxford, I believe. So I'm going to show my ass here. Who is Ramanujan? Yes. Ramanujan is... Um, you, you mentioned him three times, and I kept being like, "Should I ask?" Yeah, yeah. And then I just, and then it's, fun. it's funny that it takes courage to work up to that. Um, it, it shouldn't. Um, I know it shouldn't, especially as my uh, given I am a journalist. But no, I mean it's totally fine. Information is amazing. Um, Ramanujan is uh, probably one of the most important mathematicians that has lived, I think, in the 20th century. He's exactly what you'd expect if you were talking to me. If you were talking to someone about pioneer, he's your dream pioneer. Okay. He grew up in rural India. Became obsessed with numbers at a very early age. Started developing a lot of theories around prime numbers. And very quickly outstripped all of the local institutions around him. And for a while, this was before the internet, was trying to get officially actually published initially. That was his dream. Um, but more importantly, just find someone else to collaborate with. Right. And then by hook or by crook, he finally made his way to this guy named G.H. Hardy in Oxford, who got his letters, didn't really believe him at first, flew him out to Oxford, and then over time worked with him to develop his career. And... There's a lot in math and, and prime number theory that comes out of this man. Here's a story of a person who had to suffer quite a bit before he managed to like get connected and get all these Ivy League benefits, so to speak. And I think that you know, for every Ramanujan, there are like hundreds, thousands, possibly millions that don't continue kind of fighting. The common theme yeah. that, I, that I feel like I hear across all these stories of great people is just the inordinate amount of luck involved in their success. I think that will be viewed as weird 30, 40, 50 years from now. Yeah, because, I mean, uh, we were talking before we started recording. Uh, my previous job was covering resources, mining, oil, etc. So I spent a lot of time in Africa in particular where you see whole swathes of population who are just basically – they're just surviving. And there is no doubt uh, incredible ingenuity, and you see it like what in the market stalls, etc. But it's just it's, – uh, it's stunted. You can, it's only going to go so far yeah. just because of – the way that their life is set up. Yep. We want to basically try to help as many people as we can. And assuredly, we should at least be trying to help the, the people that, if helped, would change the world the most. And I actually think this problem is getting slightly worse today uh, due to uh, migrant refugee crises happening across the world, mm-hmm. where, I mean, historically, a lot of innovators and geniuses were refugees, yeah. um, including Einstein himself. Yeah, I think buried in a lot of these people that are getting, you know, going through mass dislocation, I think are m- many people who could change the world if just given the opportunity to. They, of course, lose all their local infrastructure and context get shoved into a new society. So it's unclear if they'll be successful unless an organization like Pioneer manages to find these people. And do you guys have, what's your funding situation? So the, the, the business model is, if this works, yeah. um, we're going to fund a lot of people doing a lot of different things. Some of those people will capture the value they create, mm-hmm. like an Elon, and some won't capture the value they create, like an Einstein. Um, we'll, we'll fund anyone because really what we're focused on here is like progress mm-hmm. in society, solving these hard problems to make the world a better place. And how big is the kitty you're starting with? And do you have like venture capitalists who have given you that money or is... We don't have real venture capitalists per se. We have Mark Andreessen individually and Stripe, the company, yeah. have uh, agreed to at least fund us for the for the next year just so we can give out a bunch of grants and see what happens. And if this works, and it's an interesting question to figure out how you measure this because it's clear the 10-year time horizon, how you measure it. Yeah. One year, I mean, genius doesn't happen overnight. Exactly. So we, we got to get smart about how we measure that, follow up with people. Kind of a funny thing is if the system works, they should just have a lot of points on our leaderboard. That that should just be the metric. <laughs> so we'll be like, look, our business is working. <laughs> yeah. Give us more money. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we have created, lots of points. We've made up a currency <laughs> and we've given it out to people. Sounds like, uh, sounds like crypto. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, but if these people really prove to be 
productive in their domain, and if our intervention proves to be important to their productivity, then um, I think there's no limit to the amount that we could raise. I think the main question for us is whether this stuff even works. I mean, whether you can identify people at scale and whether you can motivate people and really kind of build a digital Ivy League campus. That's, that's the main operational question for us. Yeah. There's quite a big difference between kind of sitting in a room and being like, okay, this is what I'm working on. Yeah. And kind of winging it online and you're kind of accountable, but not in the same way as you are if you have to sit and talk to somebody like you and I are doing right now. Yeah. And, and, and in, in the human productivity kind of progress or genius realm, there's actually very little work that's been done here. But in other worlds, there, is a, there, there are a lot of carcasses. There's an infinite amount of startups that try to motivate people to lose weight or to go to the gym. And mm-hmm. we know that stuff doesn't work. And I, you know, we, the entire team, and we're a small startup, we're three people, but we spend a lot of time thinking very deeply about the psychological kind of effects of software and how to really motivate people to do things. And I, th- I mean, I think we're making good progress. I think we've certainly built to date the most impressive thing that that gets humans held accountable. And I think the the insight, this little secret that we have that we're operationalizing that I wish more people did is we are kind of taking out of the textbook of video games, which have a nuclear level of energy associated mm-hmm. with them. And we're applying them to the productivity domain. I find it utterly fascinating. So like leaderboards. Leaderboards, injecting randomness, point systems, chat rooms, all this kind of stuff that video games have, we are kind of trying to do for productivity. We know video games make it work. I mean, it's seen as a pejorative, but I find it utterly fascinating that there are people right now around the world that are probably spending five, six, seven hours playing games like Civilization and Age of Empires, which, by the way, are resource allocation problems. That person and the person at McKinsey are doing the same thing, just in different flavors. And it's very interesting to ask, like, what is going on in the video game that is so compelling, utterly compelling? And there's a lot. There's a lot that we've been unpacking. I mean, a lot of it's reaction time, how visual it is, the leaderboard, yeah. the point. So, it's so fun. If you add up ten things, you get, and you sum them up, you get fun as a yeah. result. And so we're trying to concoct that in software. By the way, I wish we weren't alone. I mean, there's no reason to me why all software shouldn't be this way. Software should be gamified. It should help you get your goals done. Gmail should feel like a fun game where it's helping you get what you actually want to get done, which is not answering all the emails. It's like working on the important stuff. I do not understand, having now interviewed and met a lot of seasoned veteran game designers, why none of this stuff is, is brought over into productivity, but hopefully we can um, we can pioneer this. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and Well, that's why it's interesting that you talk about the gamification because it was just, I literally had this conversation about the life insurance where, you know, these people... They're kind of the fact that they will live longer and healthier is kind of almost secondary to the fact that they yeah. get to spin a digital wheel every ten days. Yeah, which is just amazing. Which is a made-up concept. It's actually quite wonderful that that humans are willing to to like be irrational this way because yeah. um, you can enable people to live longer. And so, yeah, I mean, all I spend my day thinking about is how to make what is the right formula to make a pioneer be something that is thrilling and engaging for people to do. That is a, a wonderful way to take your project and turn it into critically acclaimed research, music, art, or a company. I'll right. give you just one quick example on this. Yeah. So we get hundreds of emails a month, dozens of days sometimes, from people whose position – and bear in mind, we launched this thing like four months ago mm-hmm. – from people whose, whose leaderboard position changes – you know, and if it goes up in the right direction, they're like, oh, my God, this is the greatest thing ever. If it goes down, they're like, why is it going down? This is horrible. We realized, well, those people are right. Like losing in a game where you do not understand why you lost is very demotivating. It's like just getting punched in the face randomly by a thing yeah. where you don't understand. Like you want to reverse engineer the system so that you don't get punched anymore. So losing is fine. Losing without context is bad. So we built into our software an incredibly risky feature whereupon you vote on the other applicants. You also start giving them feedback. So you also start telling someone, I didn't think you were good and here's why. Now, this was a super scary feature to us. Especially if you're doing it online. and Because the inter- people are not nice to each no. other on the internet. No. It's like look at YouTube comments, Formspring, all these yeah. anonymous networks. So we spent a lot of time pre just reading like – hours just making sure people are writing sane things. Something really weird and wonderful happened, which is it turns out the feedback is almost entirely constructive. It's the same feedback a manager would give to someone he works with. I don't exactly know why. I was skeptical about the feature. Mm. I think it's a little bit because people feel it's a lot of outsiders who feel like they're insiders for the first time together. Right. We're all part of this thing. I might as well. 
Whereas if you look at the communities where this got particularly pernicious, it's the anonymous communities. It's the inversion in many ways of what we're doing. For us, it's all about making it a really fun, interesting game to play. And I guess the other question I had that just comes to mind hearing you talk about it is, again, here in Silicon Valley, we've reached a point, it feels like, in this kind of whatever you want to call it, innovation cycle or time in the economy or in society or whatever, where you do have very smart people working on really dumb things mm. like, you know, an, yet another dog walking app or, you know, yep. insert whatever ridiculous idea into that spot. Yes. Is that another motivation for for this? Because this... Silicon Valley is all about solving the world's biggest problems. That's yep. what, you know, the kind of the myth of this place or that draws people here. And a lot of people end up through various circumstances in real life working on whatever, some dumb app. Definitely. I mean, I think, uh, look, I think growth has slowed a little bit, just like innovation has slowed a little bit. Certainly it, f- it feels that way, right? And I don't blame people. Like, I think basically the issue is that people work on problems that are contextually relevant to them. So if your problem in life is that you have too many apps that deliver things to your home and no one to put them in the right place in your home, you're going to build the thing that solves that. And maybe that's fine, you know, locally fine. But, you know, if you take a global view, like, sorry, we got other fish to fry. You can put the food in your cupboard. Yeah. You should build a robot that does that. Um, That would be more ambitious. So if you buy the premise that people work on things that are locally important to them, then one of the easiest ways to fix the problem is to get people from other locales to work on, you know, whatever they think is important to them. And I do think the path towards bringing more of the developing world to, you know, from third to first is definitely by highlighting local entrepreneurship in that country and Mm. kind of bringing them into the light, bringing them into the fold. Because everything that translates immediately to, you know, to a global place, like, say, the mobile phone, has already translated. But what's left, a lot of local innovation, you know, someone building the local variant of Uber or the local variant of Salesforce or the local variant of... You know, any flavor of, of contextualized company is, is that's all not something we're going to be able to figure out. That's something they're going to have to figure out. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think we're kind of in many ways a little bit out of ideas over yeah. here. And this will change when the next like paradigm shift or platform comes around. But in the meantime, there's like a lot of people around the world that are solving problems that are contextually relevant to them that are really big and really important. I think the other important thing with problems uh, is, you know, it's funny, there's a, another bit of an anti-pattern to what we're discussing that I'm worried about too, which is people trying to solve incredibly grand, ambitious things for the sake of ambition alone. Like, you know, I am going to build like the American CRISPR factory. Like, I'm just going to do it. It seems like a big thing. Yeah. It's a kind of what the British would call willy waving. You learned about Ramanujan. I learned about <laughs> willy wave. Um, uh, I feel like that's an even trade. Totally. hundred percent, hundred percent. Both are Wikipedia pages. I'm sure. Uh, And I think the flaw of this is everyone is looking up to the fully formed entities. They're looking up to Google and up to Elon's Twitter account and up to, you know, in the research realm, certainly people like Einstein. And they're thinking, I want to do that. Whereas the reality is everything big starts small. And, you know, it's, it's a fun exercise to go through, you know, the original landing pages of all these large companies, Google, Facebook, Amazon. And the, they all, the Wayback Machine is yeah, a wonderful thing. I think it's really it's a really important, humbling effort. And you realize all of these things started as stupid, small projects. Even SpaceX and all of its glory, I believe, was the originally called the um, Green Mars Planet Project. The idea was conceived in L.A., of course. We were going to buy a bunch of Russian rockets, fly out a plant to Mars, take a photo of it shut down the company after, but it'll be an amazing tweet and it may increase NASA's budget. And flash forward 10 years, the person's built the largest private space company on the planet, So, but didn't intend to do so. Yeah, it's um, landing, landing them on floating platforms in the ocean. Yes, or they just missed the platform. I saw that one. Just yeah. a quick, uh, just a quick sprinkle right. in the water. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, so I think it's, it's important for us to find the right small things to work on that can grow into huge, meaningful things that change the world. And pioneers ultimately designed to motivate people to do that. If you go to the website, the word company doesn't exist there. The word critically acclaimed research doesn't. It's just project. It's just simple, right. humble. Because I think the real enemy that we face is um, the real geniuses self-editing themselves out of it. It's not for me. Yeah, yeah. That's too big. Um, so I think yeah. part of the, part of the you know cheap intervention we're trying to scale is telling people to just give it a shot. Hey, you know that thought that you have in the shower? 
follow your dream there. Yeah. I hope it works. Thank you. Me thank, too. <laughs> yeah, thank you uh, for coming over and maybe you can get some food next to the Christmas carolers on the way out. Oh, as as, as a Orthodox Jew, is my treat. Um, I hope there's Hanukkah candles somewhere, though. <laughs> I didn't see him down there, but we can talk to the building Sad. management about that. I feel triggered. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you again. And that is all the time we have. I want to thank Daniel for making the trek to our, you know, not so salubrious offices in downtown San Francisco. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I think the idea, what he's trying to do is really kind of laudable whether it works i mean it's a obviously a big nut he's trying to crack but i think it's um it'll be interesting to see how it all goes i'm actually off this week so i'm doing this on my vacay for you dear listeners so there'll be no articles in the newspaper this weekend but i am still on the twitter machine at danny fortson and i will be back next week in the sunday times and on thetimes.co.uk And if you have any other thoughts, feelings, concerns, confessions, you can email me at danny.fortson at sunday-times.co.uk. That is all I have. We will be back with another show for you next week. And we're getting down to the end of the year here. I think we'll do at least one, maybe two more shows and then take a slight Christmas break and then be back in the new year. But anyhow, keeping your ears out and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. listening to me daisy apple's iphone disassembly robot is dismantling an iphone into lots of recyclable parts that's how apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods thanks daisy there's more to iphone want truly hydrated skin Medocia's body care breakthrough hyaluronic body serum it's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER.